If you could turn to that passage, let me read uh, this uh, couple of verses for us. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that is God, who searches the hearts, our hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, that is the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. Last week, we made the most fundamental proposition in Christian life. That is, we are weak even after the redemption. Realizing that weakness comes first, then prayer. Because unless you see your inability apart from Christ, you will not be a man or woman of prayer. Negatively saying, Jesus said, For apart from me, you can do nothing, he said. Apostle Paul said, Positively, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The meaning is the same. Often, we are too strong, too wise, too clever in our own estimation. But we have seen from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the realization that we are weak, that confession and accepting it is a blessing for Christians. Because in your weakness, Christ's power comes and is perfected in our own weakness. So we begin with ourself, the biblical view of self. And I've told you last week as a conclusion that biblical self is not simply a weak one. But according to Apostle Paul, whenever I am weak, then I am strong in Jesus' power, self is the beginning point for our discussion about prayer in coming weeks, just few weeks. So let us not throw away last week's foundation because we are going to build upon that self. Whenever I am weak, then I am strong, that self. First of all, but I need to ask you, to take out an eraser, that's an imaginary one, eraser, and erase everything that you know about prayer life. Okay? So erase everything that you know about prayer. And for next at least three weeks, I am going to talk about these three Things that I hope that could be the pillars upon which you will build your Christian prayer life. Whatever you know, for now, forget about it. Everything that you know about Christian prayer. And use these three as the pillars. 
three statements that I will repeat for next three weeks. First one, this is today's theme, the hardest probably. Forget about everything that you know about prayer and put this in. First one is this, in and during your prayer. I use the word during because I want to emphasize the actual doing of prayer. In and during your prayer, the Holy Spirit is there with you and for you, interceding on your behalf, bringing your meager prayer into the will of God. That is a mouthful statement, but that's what these two verses mean. What's the first one about Christian prayer? It is that Holy Spirit is there with you, for you, in and during your prayer, interceding for you, and bringing our weak prayer into the will of God. That is, if I could state it this way, you are hard because of Christ, but also in the Holy Spirit. Or you could say the Holy Spirit amplifies our prayer into the right frequency. If I could put it that way. Second statement that I'm going to say, but I want you to remember in your prayer life, is that everything is going to be alright, is the statement. Third statement is this. You have two intercessors for you in your prayers. Those three pillars, I want you to put it in your system. Forget about how to pray, when to pray, all other things that you know about Christian prayer, but put these three things as pillars in your mind, and upon that you will build your Christian prayer. And we'll explain that. I have a daunting task today to explain these two verses for us to understand. And as I prayed, this is not an easy thing for me to do, not an easy thing for you to do in the pews, but by the grace and help of God, let us do that. I want you to have that bulletin open in front of you and look at that text over and over again as I try to explain few phrases for us to understand. So at the end of the day, I mean, this is the Word of God. And we have to understand it. In order for us to understand these two simple verses, we need to understand at least these three phrases or things, topics. First is the Holy Spirit in Romans and in Romans 8. Second, the will of God that happens toward the end of that verse. Third, the phrase with groanings too deep for words. So let us begin. Think of Romans as a book. Think of Romans 8 as the spine of the book, the center, the hinge. And you open it up, you have left and you to the right. So because this is the 8th chapter, there will be first 1 through 7th chapter on the left, 8 and 9 through 16 chapters of Romans. I counted the word, the Holy Spirit, in those cases. On the left column, first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit appears only four times. From 9 through 16, but only up to 15, 
Holy Spirit, the word appears only eight times. So four and eight, and this hinge, the, the eighth chapter. In it alone, the Holy Spirit appears about 21 times. That is a lot. As if God is saying, life in Christ is life in the Spirit. Out of those 21 times in chapter 8 alone, the Holy Spirit, I didn't print the whole thing, but if you read from chapter 8, verse 1, most of the reference to the Holy Spirit will be describing something of an monergistic work of God, such as, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You don't contribute to that work of the Spirit. So mostly the Spirit is referenced to His sovereign work. But today, verse 26 and 27, God says through Paul, the primary function of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life post-justification is helping us in our prayers. It's like this. You know submarines. We don't see them, but you know they are protecting us on both sides of the uh, you know, oceans, deep in the water. But we also know sometimes they emerge out of the water and they, they stay. I saw it once under the Verrazano Bridge, actually. Big U.S. submarine just floating around. It's like that. Holy Spirit is usually behind the scene kind of operation. Assuring us, convicting us, and all of that. But in chapter 8, verse 26, the Holy Spirit emerges from the deep. And we see it in our Christian life. And God says, Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. What does that tell you? Prayer is not a chore. It is not a burden. It is not simply a duty of a Christian. But it is a glorious one, glorious thing that we have as a privilege of God's children to commune with our living God. Until we see something of that glory, prayer talk is always burdensome. And you feel always guilty. But I want you to see, if you had Romans only, okay? Everything is ripped out, and you are on a a desert island, and you, you have one book in the Bible, that's Romans. From that, you will understand that Holy Spirit's primary function in believer's life Okay, justification and sanctification is all by the Spirit too. But in terms of practical Christian life, Holy Spirit's function is to help me, help you in your prayers. Why do we need His help in our prayer? Because the Bible says, because of our weakness. And that weakness extends itself to that following verse. For we do not know how to pray as we should. And in this context, that weakness really is that we do not know 
how to pray as we should. And now the difficult part, some grammar stuff. If you have ESV, which is the dominant translation that people use, ESV, CSV, King James, NIV, New King James, New Living Translation, they will translate that verse as, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. They translate that word as what? That is a puzzling statement because often, don't you know what you want to pray for? We know. I, want to, I know what I want to pray for. We will go to prayer meetings. You tell us prayer topics. You know what prayer requests are. So when you come to that statement, we are puzzled. What do you mean? For we do not know what to pray for? NAS, my translation that I use for my preaching, uses the word how. How to pray as we should. Why that confusion? Because of that one Greek word that could be translated into the following. Who, which, what, why, even how. Right, so translators are doing their best to make sense out of that. But as you could tell, how is a bigger concept than what? So I think how is a much better translation trying to teach us our weaknesses, not simply the object or prayer topic that we don't know, but how. How to begin our prayer, really, yes, it includes what? Sometimes we don't know what to pray for, which way we should be praying for. So go with how. Our weakness is that we don't know how we should pray. That includes all what, why, everything else that falls under the category of that one single Greek word, T. And I want you to look at that verse again. The main point, I'm going to read two verses again, skip the, skipping the middle. Read with me with your heart, with your eyes. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit, that is Holy Spirit, Himself intercedes for us. Skip to the last sentence. We don't know, but Holy Spirit intercedes for us because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Forgetting the middle, the main thrust of that to uh, verses is that Holy Spirit intercedes. But he intercedes for us because we don't know how to pray with, as we should, but he's interceding for us according to the will of God. He's bringing us into the will of God is how he intercedes for us. Not knowing God's will is the fundamental issue with us sinners. And even after the redemption for us, we are not omniscient. We don't know. So how, how often do we pray, Lord, what is your will for me? What is your will for me in this situation? Should I? Should I not? Tell me your will. How many times do we pray that prayer? But what these verses tell us is that even in that state, Holy Spirit is working with us and for us on our behalf, bringing us closer to the will of God, like autofocus. He's focusing us. That is why we need His help. 
His intercession is essential and necessary for us because the, the thought is this. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God because the Father searches the hearts of the people, the weak human hearts that do not know how to pray. The Father knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Father and the Spirit, they have one will. As such, the Spirit cannot but bring the will of the Father as the Spirit intercedes for the saints. So we may not be precise in our prayers, but the Spirit's intercession comes with clarity. Maybe not known to us. We may not perceive it, but the Word of God teaches us that Spirit brings clarity according to the will of God, So in that overlapping, our weakness and Holy Spirit's intercession, and His embracing and enveloping us, we are hard in and through the Holy Spirit. Once again, we may not perceive it, the work of God, of the Spirit, for us in that fashion. But one thing we should know as we pray is that, We may be weak in our prayer. We may not know what really to pray for. You may be sitting in front of the Lord in your own time, in your own place, just not saying anything. But even during those times, what should you know? The Holy Spirit is there interceding for me, bringing me to the will of God. Because their will, His will and His will, it is the same will. R.C. Sproul comments on this verse, which is an obvious statement, but let me say it because it's R.C. Sproul. To pray according to the will of God, what what does that mean? You will see your prayers answered when they correspond to the will of the Father. Another thing that I want to explain, if you will look at the text, look at the last section. You see how there's an italics toward the end? Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that the will of, uh, in italics as you could see. You see, in New King James and NAS Bible version, they differentiate the, the words from the original text with this way, in this way. When you see the italics, what that means in that version is that Those words are not found in the original language. They are honestly letting us know, NASB and New King James, that those italics are the words that we are providing for you as translators to make better sense of that sentence. So immediately when you see that, oh, the will of is not there, then you have to think. And this is the second grammar part, or uh, difficult thing. But try to listen. Real original translation of that verse 27 toward the end should say, because the Holy Spirit, He intercedes for us, the saints, according to God. Not according to the will of God, because that word is not there. And I checked two Greek Bible uh, versions. UBS and NA27, it is is not there. 
What does that mean? He's interceding for the saints according to God. My thought immediately went to the doctrine of God. Holy Spirit is interceding for us according not to the will of God. That's not what the text says, but according to God. So obviously you begin with the doctrine of God. What does that mean? When you open up the doctrine of God in any kind of book, the systematic books, it will always begin with the attributes of God, explaining what God is like today, the second chapter of Westminster Confession. Section 1, section 2 talks about the attributes of God, His wise, holy, and all of that. And they move on to the names of God. You trace the names of God in the Bible to, to get sense of what God is like. Shalom, you know, God is Shalom, and God is Prince of Peace, or Jehovah Jireh, Rapha, and all of that teach us with something about God. Then they usually deal with the will of God or decree of God. They do not talk about will of God under the heading of the attributes of God. Why? Think about that. Will of God is much stronger a term than the attributes of God. So listen to Bob Lethem. His systematics, one of the most recent systematic theology books that came out, under the heading of will, he talks about, in the case of God, his will, God's will, is an aspect of his omnipotence and sovereignty. Indeed, of all other attributes, and as such, is inherently effective in accomplishing his purposes. What is? Will is. So think of it this way. The attributes of God that we have heard from second chapter of Westminster Confession last week and even today, the attributes of God are really about inward looking, whereas the will or the decree of God is outward looking because it accomplishes God's plan. With that in mind, I was looking and meditating on that. He, in Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to God should mean then we cannot reduce God into simply into His will. If you want to go with the will of God in this section, that will of God must be underguarded by all of the attributes of God. Because when you talk about decree or will of God, it is a, almost you feel like mechanical. God has decided and it will come to pass. But when Apostle Paul says, Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God, and yes, meaning is really according to the will of God, But let us not lose sight of all that God is. His attributes are, out of many, His wisdom, mercy, love, holiness, justice. So if you are going to talk about will of God, His will should be wise will, gracious will, loving will, holy will, patient, just will, and so on. This has a big implication for what I'm going to talk about next. One last 
heart section. That is the groaning. Look again with me in that text. The last section should read, according to, not simply to the will of God, but according to all that God is for us in Jesus Christ is the sense. It's not simply according to the will of God. I want to talk about the groaning, the last sentence of verse 26. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In that English translation, who do you think is doing the groaning? Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I mean, as I read it, I think it was the Holy Spirit, because Holy Spirit is interceding for us, and probably with groanings too deep for words, uh, describing the Spirit. But what do you know? People are debating who's, the, who's doing the groaning. There are two camps, as always, there are debates. I kind of knew this because a long time ago I've read John Murray's commentary on this. But early on this week, as I was thinking about this, I went to my bookshelf and I pulled out a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones' Romans series is about this big. And I pulled out and wanted to see what Lloyd-Jones said about this verse. And if you are a Lloyd-Jones fan... Close your ears. <laughs> In his typical fashion, his words are really certain and to a degree harsh. Listen to this. It is not the Holy Spirit who is groaning, but the saints. And his, his reasoning is this. But that surely cannot be the case. The Holy Spirit is, the one, is one of the three persons in the Blessed Holy Trinity. He never groans. He never sighs. That is inconceivable. There is no lack of knowledge in the Holy Spirit. He knows all things as the third person in the Blessed Holy Trinity. And therefore, there is no cause for groaning. So I say that is utterly inconceivable that it is the Holy Spirit himself who does the groaning. The groaning is in ourselves. And as, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why can he? Who says the Holy Spirit cannot groan? This is the classic case where good doctrine hampers you from reading the text from the, the, as it stands. I read this sentence many times, trying to think what he's trying to say. Because the Holy Spirit has perfect knowledge, he knows all things, therefore there is no cause for groaning. Perfect knowledge, unchangeable decree, then there's no room for groaning. And I thought that was a uh, way to uh, intellectualism, I would say. When you reduce God into mere will of God, then the only thing that you are left with is logic. Logically speaking, Holy Spirit knows all things. Therefore, there's no room for groaning for the Holy Spirit. 
John Murray, the venerable, that, that systematician of Westminster Seminary, he says the same thing, Holy Spirit cannot groan. I'm going to quote the other camp. The vast majority of the commentators, they say it is the Holy Spirit who groans in this text. But I am not going to quote the theologians, but I'm going to give you three quotations from three well-known pastors. First one, Kent Hughes, he says this. Creation groans, we groan in chapter 8, and even the Holy Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit expresses those things we feel but cannot articulate. The Holy Spirit says those things we want to say but cannot mouth. What, how beautiful. May we appreciate our wealth. Second comment from Chuck Swindle. He just came out with his New Testament commentaries. Chuck Swindle says on this verse, and I thought this was, I mean, really, this is what I wanted to say, but I couldn't really articulate <laughs> But Chuck Swindle helps me articulate, and Chuck Swindle says this. He groans on our behalf because, like the Son, the Spirit has taken the problem of evil upon himself voluntarily by dwelling within his children. He, that is Holy Spirit, loves us even more than we love ourselves, and therefore he groans with us. He intercedes on our behalf, praying with wisdom we do not possess, requesting for us what we are too short-sighted to perceive. And most important of all, He groans His intercessions in heaven so that our minds and the mind of the Father will unite to accomplish His will. You see, Lloyd-Jones is too intellectual. Spirit knows all things, therefore there's no room for Him to there's no point. He cannot groan because he knows all things. He knows the mind of God. But Swindle brings in the other side, which I believe is what the text is saying. Holy Spirit resides within us, with his children. Holy Spirit is God. He loves us. And he sees what? What did the text say? Our weakness. He sees us not able to articulate not able to discern, not able to speak a right word, right moment. And he groans with us. That's the state of my children, Holy Spirit says. Then, he, sure, he loves us. That was really great. Listen to MacArthur, John MacArthur on this verse. And he brings us something, another perspective on it. The Holy Spirit unites with us in our desire to be freed from our corrupted earthly bodies and to be with God forever in our glorified heavenly bodies. Yet those groans carry profound content. Namely, divine appears for the spiritual welfare of each believer. In a way, infinitely beyond our understanding, these groanings represent what might be called intertrinitarian communication, divine articulations by the Holy Spirit to the Father. And all major translation, English translations seem to tie the groaning to the, to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's groaning tells us that Holy Spirit is not indifferent to our weaknesses and sufferings. You know what I honestly thought? after listening to Lloyd-Jones' comment, maybe he never suffered in his life. 
Not major suffering in his life, probably. But if you know what it means to suffer, you could immediately understand Holy Spirit will sympathize with us. He will be groaning with us, in us, for his children. Now, let us read these two verses again. Let's simply read it again with all the things that I have explained to you. And I will draw a few conclusions from it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, let me draw some practical meaning or reflections and applications based upon what we have just seen. First of all, the obvious one is that, have you noticed that it is the Apostle Paul including himself in it. Holy Spirit helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. That's right. Even Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, the famous Apostle, sometimes didn't know how to pray to God. But the good news is that the Holy Spirit is a helper in our prayer. Second is this. According to these verses, our prayer time is never really a wasted time. Times you spend just sitting down before God, those times are not wasted. Because according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with words and uh, the groaning too deep for words. Even in your pains, and you just really, even you groan and you just don't know. And those times are not wasted times. To put it another way, flip side of the same coin would be then, non-praying time, your worries, worrying time, times that you are stressed out, the times that you plan, devise things and dream and so on, alone, those are the wasted time. Because Holy Spirit is said to help us in our prayers. Of course, Holy Spirit is in us, he resides within us and He helps us in all things in everywhere and every time, that whatever that we do. But the point here is that in your prayer, He helps. His help is pronounced in our prayer time. Third conclusion is this. Remember in the beginning, I've asked you to erase everything about prayer. If you are invited by a missionary serving in a remote place, Hey, so-and-so, this summer, can you come to my mission field and teach my congregation? 
about prayer, what would you teach? I was just thinking about my own prayer life and all the things that we know about our Christian prayer. Most of us, I would say all of us, we learn prayer by watching our parents pray, our pastors pray. We, we learn by watching someone praying for us on our behalf in our prayer meetings. We, that's how we learn. Depending on your tradition too. But what would you teach if you are going to that mission field and teach about the Christian prayer? Will you teach what time you should be praying? Or how loud we should be praying? In what manner or form should you be praying? Kneeling down, lying down, prostrating really on the floor? What formula is there for us to recite? How emotional you become in your prayer. Not that it is wrong. When I think about prayers in general, what I noticed is that we teach and emphasize all those different things about prayers depending on your tradition. Because there's an implicit Dependence upon that work. I have given you the section from Mount Carmel in the beginning about the Baals and, and, and Elijah. All pagan prayer is to impress their deity. That's, that's what it, the prayer is all about in general sense. Just like the prophets of Baal, some other religions, they slash their bags until the blood comes out. Why? Because it impresses God. You are that serious about obeying me. Or how loud, how long you could pray. I don't want to demean those traditions. There are good things in those, some of the traditions. But one thing that we should know from today's text is that in our prayers, we are hard because of the Holy Spirit. What we need to learn is to learn to lean on the Spirit more. Is the point today. Not relying on how many times. In our own country, Buddhist temple, you go to Buddhist temple, they teach you, you need to kneel down thousand times. Three thousand times. How many miles you go and bow down and walk, bow down, walk, bow down? Why? Why, why would you do that? Because as I am going through much pain, we are hoping somebody is listening and they are impressed. All work bases, human righteousness, all other false religions teach that. And we must be very careful about that. Rather, our gospel says, if you went to that remote place and let's say for the first time you're teaching about prayer, you would say, good news about our God is our God helps you in your prayers. You don't have to impress me because you cannot impress me. Rather, rely upon the Spirit. 
He's there, right there with you and for you. Wouldn't that be a good news? It it would liberate so many people from their own world of prayer. That's why I said, forget about house, forget about anything else, but know that Holy Spirit is there for you. He's interceding. The word is pleading for you. The final one. Here's a quotation. The groaning of the church in the midst of the groaning world is sustained and even inspired by the groaning of the Spirit. Paul here assumes both that the church is called to the task of intercession. Out of all these theologians, anti Wright says that. If you know his name, I'm just telling you I don't like him. But I have to tell you that he was the only one out of multitudes of people that I've consulted with that he will talk about church's task. Bringing these two verses out of pages and out of my own self and to the horizon of the church. It's not simply my groaning and my pains in my own little world. But church is groaning in this fallen world that, that hear the groanings of the sinful world like the people outside of Noah's ark. And yes, there is no, here in these two verses, it doesn't say you should be praying for the world outside of the church. But right, we say, Paul here assumes both the church is called to the task of intercession and something else. Task of our church. And I thought, that's, that's good. This is well said. If the Holy Spirit is groaning because of our weaknesses, the same Spirit will not leave us alone to the world that is perishing around us. Right. The work of the church begins with prayer. So we should be praying for the people uh, in our lives, outside of church. Let us pray.